welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome adventurers to episode 32 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name's Patrick. It's King Scott here. And Scott, we've been really busy lately. Today's no exception. We got a chock full episode. We've got a lot of recent adventures. We have an 8-bit breakdown of Kickstarter hit Dog Park. Plus, we're going to do a lot of discussion on the financial side of board gaming, and we get to visit Andrew at the Academy. You can always count on him to do something awesome for the show, so thank you so much in advance. It's a good one today. So what you been up to? Going a little bit crazy, still doing the Renaissance Festival. Today is the first big day of Origins 2021, and I'm not there, and you're not there. Wait, you're there, kind of. Well, I'm kind of there. (laughs) This is the first time in about four years that I haven't gone. I have fallen in love with Origins. It is my absolute favorite thing to do. So just for fun of it, uh, we decided to print out a picture of me, send it with some of our friends here from Western PA, and they're taking it around and having King Scott adventure through Origins. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen a couple pictures already this morning. Uh, They had a picture of me in the hotel room, laying on the bed, saying, I hope you're well rested. Get ready for the con. I'm already on the con floor. I've run into a goblin and a DJ (laughs) from SCG Hobby. So I've... I've been around quite a bit already today. That thing's going to come back crinkled and crusty. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, that's usually how I come back from Origins, crinkled and crusty, so it's all fine. Get the con funk. What do they call that? Con crud, right? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I've not really come down with it or anything, but yeah, I stretch myself far, far too thin during those six or seven days there. I just try and do everything I possibly can while I'm there. Well, contain your excitement with any luck. Everything's falling into place. We've already got a room reserve. We're going to be at PAX in Philadelphia at the beginning of, what is it, December, right? Yes, yes. That is going to be great. This is your first time to PAX, correct? That's right. Yeah, so you got a lot of stuff to take in. It's going to be a great time. I think I'm going to be working with Berkey with uh, Game Toppers. Mm -hmm. So I'll be there, stop by the booth and uh, say hi. I'll be selling those amazing toppers that he has there. I have one in my house, and I'm waiting for my legs and a couple more mats for my topper here coming in soon. Did you see Quack Quack No Take Backs funded? I know. I saw that. Cheers to those guys. Speaking of successful Kickstarters, remember we talked with Eric and Shannon Geller from Quests and Cannons. Did you see they're doing, did you see they're funded? That game was really just an absolute blast to play. I think it's one of the uh, quotes actually on their Kickstarter page. I can't believe that this is their first one that they made and the quality that they put into this first game. They set the bar pretty high, I got to say there. Their expectations are going to be too high. Scott, didn't you get a quote on this Kickstarter? Uh, Yeah, I got a a quote on that one. Ah, there it is. Lightning in a bottle. That's what this is. Quests and Cannons has all the bells and whistles that we've come to expect from some big players in the industry. And they knocked it out of the park on their first. Don't wait on this game. It's just that good. Scott Walton, Level Up Board Game Podcast. Well, look at you. Okay, 
that's that's actually kind of neat. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cool whenever you have the opportunity to play a game ahead of time and give your opinion on it, get to interact with the designers, and then you know see your quote on a Kickstarter page. I, I get it. it's kind of like a small fish in a small pond, but you know what? It's it's a little validating for us to to see yeah. to see a host yeah, get definitely. up there. Very nice. I also want to encourage adventurers to go back and listen to the Magical Friends episode, episode 31. I said at the end of the episode, of all the preview games we've done to this point, that one was my favorite. It wasn't the most grandiose. It didn't have the miniatures that some of the other ones did. It, uh, you know, it just, mm. if you listen to the show and you're like, man, I really like the games that Pat likes, which you should, you're going to like Magical Friends. There's all sorts of stuff in this thing here. Going through heaven and hell. I'm really looking forward to that. You know what stood out the most with Magical Friends for me is that it's rare that you get a game where you're laughing, you're chuckling with each other. You have this cartoony, playful art, and yet it is a tactical thinker. It has mm-hmm. all those you know gears turning to, to play well, and yet you can't help but chuckle. It's, well, we, we drew the comparison to Small World, and I feel like that was an yes. excellent comparison. Absolutely loved Magical Friends. It's live on Kickstarter now. Go back and listen to episode 31, hear what we have to say about it. Scott, what's this I see you have to say about uh, Star Wars Armada in the notes? Are you, are you cramming minis into the show? Yes, I am. Now, what do we got? Here, we're kind of going on a downer here a little bit, and this kind of upsets me. But Yeah, we're talking it's one miniatures of those things. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> That's one, Patrick. That's one. Atomic Mass Games has basically put out an announcement that they have no new plans for new models for Star Wars Armada. Mm. Now, this has been something, Armada has been the unlike stepchild of Fantasy Flight for so long. It never got the love that X-Wing got. Uh, Then Legion came out, and that became the new golden child. And Armada just kind of sat back in the corner. Armada is a fantastic game. If you like Star Wars, the big battles with uh, Star Destroyers all the big rebel frigates and stuff like that. It's an amazing game. It's uh, a great naval game. So you're basically constantly moving. There's no stopping in the game whatsoever. And being that you're dealing with these huge capital ships, you have to plan one, two, three, sometimes even four steps into the future as to what, where you think you're going to be and what you're going to be doing. But uh, for a long time there, we did not get anything for Armada there was no word on it. There was nothing else. And then all of a sudden, boom, here comes the prequels. Here come a bunch of new ships for you. They knocked it out of the park with the new stuff. The separatist ships are gorgeous. And then they just now came out and saying, yep, we don't really have any plans right now. We have a lot of other things that are more important. It's one of those things as an Armada player, I don't know if I should just say, well, that's it. That's the final nail in the coffin. Or is it going to be one of those things where, all right, I, I take your word at it. It's going to be close for a year or so, and then you're going to come back out with new stuff. It's hard to tell, but it's it's just something that's upsetting whenever you see a game that you love just kind of getting put on the shelf. Now, granted, you can still play the game. It's still a fantastic game, but it makes it so much more fun whenever you get the new stuff to yeah, play Yeah, of course, of course. Let me ask you this. Do you think because the game has an IP, it's going to give it a shelf life? Uh, per se, especially in a, in a game where they do plan expansions. They had uh, Star Wars Destiny, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, I never, I didn't get into Destiny, but I just, I know the Star Wars IP. So you make a Luke Skywalker character card for that game. 
you can only make Luke Skywalker once. Maybe you make him again and it's Jedi Luke Skywalker. Maybe you mm-hmm. make him again and he's, I don't know, lost on Tatooine Luke Skywalker. Like <laughs> you can only make so many iterations before it's like, okay, you're, you're kind of beating the dead horse here. Back in the beginning of playing Magic the Gathering, uh, Star Wars CCG, actually, they had a little collectible card game that was that was pretty good. You had the, the light side, the dark side. And I remember the Darth Vader card was like 55 bucks. There was definitely a limitation to what a game like Star Wars could do compared with a game like Magic. Or, and I'm not trying to like compare the two, but a game that has an open IP. Magic can create anything. They have vehicles, for God's sakes. They they could do anything, and as long as it's like general fantasy, it works. And you know what else? They learn something. Early on, you might have a card like Flying Pegasus. Okay, that's pretty generic of a term. You don't want to have Flying Pegasus. You can't have Fire Dragon. No, 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 no. Let's make this world be Dominaria and let's call it a Shivan dragon because it's from Shiv. Let's, you know, rather than just have generic soldier, make it Benelish infantry as they did in Weatherlight way back in the day so that it's, you can have Benelish infantry and make it a relatively generic card, but then you can also have Ravnica infantry and it's going to be basically the same card, but different name, different flavor, different art, and it fits the theme of a different set they're allowed to do that. Whereas a game like Armada, eventually, aren't they just going to run out of ships? I think it will. They pretty much covered all the ships. But I think one of the things that they really could go into to make the game great is make more cards for those ships. Now, there are two Darth Vaders in the game. There's one that first came out, great card and everything, very useful. Then the one came out on the Super Star Destroyer. And talk about thematic. This is great. Basically, the whole idea is if you feel that your commander on another Imperial ship went bad or did something stupid, you can force choke them from the Super Star Destroyer and get rid of them. And and they just take over that ship. It's It's such a neat thing. They could do so much with doing thematic things with those ships and give them different abilities. I think this game could live on for quite some time if they just gave out like little additional card packs or something for all the ships that they have. And that would be a great way of keeping the game going and vibrant and keeping the interest there. And going back to it, the Star Wars CCG, you have absolutely no idea how much of that I have in my house right now. Really? The old one from 95? I adore that game. I have probably three big boxes, three huge card binders filled with the cards. I think I have that Darth Vader card in there. You name it. I got a you ton were a of that junkie. Stuff. You picked the wrong one between that oh, and magic. I was a junkie at that game. Oh my God. I love that game. Did we just make the banter turn into our first recent play? We're going to, we're going to say our motto is it, huh? Well, well, no, no, I haven't played that in a little while. I haven't had the time to really get into doing that, but I feel there's a day coming up soon in a couple of weeks that uh, a friend of mine from the Renaissance Festival and I are going out to his house, sitting down, throwing it out on his table and having a good old slobber knocker. Well, you haven't played it recently. Tell me about something that you have played recently, King Scott. What's been on the table? Once again, a lot of my time has been tied up with the Renaissance Festival. Every now and then, I like to be able to play a game whenever I have some free time, get some patrons to come up and play. One of those games that I decided to take out one day was Tellstone's The King's Gambit. 
This is from Riot Games, designed by Chris Cantrell, and it came out in 2020. Now, whenever this came out, there was a lot of controversy with it. Ooh, Um, I like controversy. A lot of of media creators were saying it's a great game. A lot of them were saying it's a stupid game. Then they started getting into, well, the people that said it's a great game, they're getting paid to give their opinion on it. But Mm -hmm. I still, I looked at it and I'm like, you know what? This looks like a fun game, a simple game you can play. And the King's Gambit, hey. I get to play King, so I'm going to take it to festival and play it with people. So one day I sat down at a picnic table with some people. They were eating and I folded it out there. And first thing they look over and they're like, uh, what's that? Well, it's Telstones, the King's Gambit. Would you like to play? And they sat down and played. And playing the game is really quite simple. You have a little blue piece of material and you have seven different tiles They could have a crown on it, a hammer on it, a horse on it, all these different things. And what you're going to be doing during the game is you're going to be telling your opponent what to do. You can tell them, place the shield next to the horse. Switch the place of the horse with the shield. Turn over that flag. And the whole idea is you want to keep it going and you want to be able to get points. And how you get points are saying challenging them to tell you what that upside down tile is if you can tell me what that upside down tile is you get a point you only go to three points that's it but then the big one is the boast so if it goes on and on and on and there is a bunch that are turned upside down you can just throw it out there and say you know what i can name all the upside down ones i i can name it right now i'll win the game they come back with all right, I believe you. That's fine. Then you get a point. If they say, no, I don't believe you, show me, and you pick out all of them correctly, you win the game. If they say, no, show me, and you can't figure out what they are, they win the game. So it's a quick game, but it turned out to be such a great social experiment, if you will. We had people just circling around this table now. And everyone was watching. They're trying to guess what the things were. And they're just, ooh, ooh, ooh. And then once one person lost, then another person, can I give it a try? Give me a go. And another yeah. person got in. I must have sat there for about 45 minutes just playing with different people, talking, laughing, joking about this game. You can do all sorts of things to th- throw people off where you might just say, you know that the one tile that's upside down is a shield. And you'll tell them, Move that sword over where the horse is. And then you see that look on their head. They wait, wait, wait. That was a shield. Why does he think it's a sword? You're just trying to play some mind games with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of mind games that go with this. It's just fun. Do you think maybe some of the backlash on this? I mean, okay. First of all, it is a memory game. Let's let's get that out of the way. This is a five-minute – no, it is a five-minute game. So it's not like you're going to sit down for 45 minutes to play memory. If you know that that's what you're getting into, it's – it's a bit more acceptable, right? Do you think mm-hmm. that maybe some of the backlash comes from the fact that this came from Riot, who gave us mechs and minions, and people maybe had a more grandiose expectation of the game? There might have been, because this is put into the universe of, I think it's League of Legends. Yeah. So that has a big thing there as well, too. It could be that people were expecting something big, and they didn't get get it from that. Mm. Now, I went into it, I know nothing about League of Legends other than there's a game called League of Legends. That's it. That's all I know. 
So going in with no background or anything like that, that could be why I enjoy it. I just have a good time with it. It's just something to take up five, 10 minutes, have a good time, a few laughs, move on. I don't know what the backlash really was for. In my book, turned out to be a great time. Sounds like it could be a good one to play at the coffee shop. or This is a great one for whenever you're waiting for your food at a restaurant or something like that. Place your order. You got a few minutes to wait. Throw that out with whoever you're eating with. Play it, and you can have some laughs there while you're waiting. What do you think is a good age range? Oh, this could be pretty much anything. I would say, but getting into the mind game part of it, uh, I would say probably nine and up. Okay. I would guess would be at a point where they would start understanding being able to be tricky and wily with your opponent. It's a two-player game? It's a two-player game. You can play it with four players, but I think that that kind of really dilutes the game's fun part. Af- they just uh, want to be able to put it. that on the box. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So that. it's it's definitely uh, shines as a two-player game. Well, Tellstone's The King's Gambit. All right, thank you, Scott. Now, Lynn, I know I couldn't be the only one to play something. I know you had to play something. What did you play? You have got to switch that segue. <laughs> <laughs> We've used literally every episode. I go, now I know I'm not the only one. All right, well, then we'll change it. Patrick. Yes, sir. What did you play? <laughs> not like this, Scott. Not like this. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about Viscounts of the West Kingdom. This is designed by Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald. This was published in 2020. It's the last of the West Kingdom trilogy, uh, as I'm sure you know, Scott. But listeners, that's Architects and Paladins. These are those little red boxes. They also have the North Sea trilogy. So let's break down Viscounts. Thematically, you play as Viscounts, trying to gain the favor of the people as the reign of the king is becoming a bit shaky. Now, for the record, Scott, I'll give you one guess what a Viscount is. I looked it up. What is a Viscount? A Viscount? I want to say it's someone that's just below a baron. This is ridiculous. You you, you came close. You came close. All Did right. you look this up? No. Okay. It's a, uh, according to what I found on Google, a British nobleman ranking above a baron and below oh. an earl. So it's below an earl and above a baron. And if you know what an earl and or a baron are, (laughs) kudos to you. (laughs) You're going to score points in Viscounts by building buildings, writing manuscripts, helping out in the castle, and gaining deeds to land. Now, the way you do this basically is through card play, using a deck of townsfolk cards that you start the game with. Everybody's got the same cards. You're going to be modifying this throughout play. When you play cards, you got a player board in front of you that has basically a river of three slots. I'm not sure what they call it. I was calling it a river whenever I was showing people how to play. So I'm just going to keep calling it the river. On your turn, you're going to play one card. Well, prior to playing one card, you're going to shift every card in your river to the right, and then you're going to add a card. And if there's something already in that third slot, the rightmost slot in the river, it falls off. And your townsfolk from your deck have a variety of abilities. Primarily, they're going to give you resources, and they're also going to allocate the amount of movement that your Viscount piece is allowed to move on the main board. Speaking of which, each player's got a Viscount Meeple on that main board. It's going to move at least a number of spaces equal to the added up costs of the townsfolk in your river. So let's suppose that you have three. One of them costs one coin, one costs two, and the other one costs two. Well, you've got to move your Viscount five spaces. You can move it some more. There, there are ways, but minimum five. You can't be like, I'll move two and stop. Let's talk about this main board that the Viscount's on. 
Scott, is it, have you seen Viscounts yet? I I didn't get to play I with you. I haven't seen Viscounts. Okay, no. it's like a five slice pie that you put together at the beginning of the game. The outer ring has actions. The inner ring has actions, and your Viscount is moving along the paths on these five pie pieces. That makes sense. Yes. Yes. Okay. So he's going from clearing to clearing, kind of like a giant rondelle. And then after you're done moving that Viscount, you take one of the four main actions of the game. If you're on the outer ring of the board, you can either trade or build. If you're on the inner ring, you can either write manuscripts or send workers to the castle. You get a handful. Um, there must be 20 of these little meeples that you get to start with. Those are the workers for the castle. Now, there's a cost to do whatever action you're going to pick, and it's represented by a symbol. Well, how many of that symbol do you have? It's easy. You look at your river of three cards, and you count how many of that symbol is present. That's basically your spending power. So if you want to take the writing manuscripts action, you look for how many crosses you have. And you just look down at your main board. This guy has one. This guy has two. This one has none. Okay, I have three crosses to work with. But if you wanted to take a a different action, you'd look for – what do they call it? Fleur de lis, that French? Yes. Okay. Um, You look for that, and that's how you're going to be able to send people to the castle. Now, in each of these five pie pieces that your Viscount's moving along, you have a stack of townsfolk on each section of the board, and you have the chance to recruit the top card showing for however many coins it requires. You get to add it to your discard, and what do you know? You've got a little bit of deck building added in Viscounts. There are ways to call cards, discard cards from your hand. So the game does have an element of deck building. Now, there are three things that make Viscounts stick out to me. The castle, the virtue track, and the deeds and debts. I know that sounds like four. I looped deeds and debts together yeah. there. Okay, so let's talk about the castle. Those five pie slices, they don't come to a point. So whenever you put them together, they leave a circle in the very middle of the board in this castle. This actual plastic castle sits in there. So oh. you have the castle in the middle of the game board, and one of your four main actions, that sending workers to help at the castle, you're going to mm-hmm. put meeples onto the bottom rung of this, it's a three-tiered castle, you're going to put them adjacent to the space that the Viscount is in on the bottom rung, okay? Then if you have three or more in that space, you move one up, you move one to the left around the bottom rung, and one to the right around the bottom rung. When guys move up to the second or third tier, they're going to give you a bonus. Whoever reaches the top first gets a card that will give you bonus points. There's incentives to get people up this castle. But right. the fact that when you put them on, they start rotating. I thought, oh, hey, that's neat. I haven't seen this in other games. Remember the workers, whenever you moved your three off of that space? Yes. Maybe one went to the left, and that was your third in that space. Well, that's going to give you a little cascade action. You've got to bump okay, one of them up. Yeah. One of, okay, so you can kind of spam dudes in this castle. There's also a little bit of player interaction here because when you moved your workers, so I moved one of my guys to the left, it's possible that a space might now have more than three workers. Say two of yours, one of mine, and one of Mike's. So there's four there. I've got to get mm-hmm. rid of one to bring it down to three. And you know what? Mike's in the lead, so I'm going to get rid of Mike's worker. So I got to kind of take that. It's hard to plan though. I mean, it is, there are so many things going on. It's very hard to plan what you're going to be doing in a turn and how things are going to work out. So I'm not at a point yet in Viscounts where I can look at what I'm going to be doing on my turn at the start of it and come up with the end of the line solution of, oh, and that will bump Mike's meeple off the castle. I also wanted to talk about the virtue track. You have a little track in the center of your player board with a marker on each end. You got the far left, which is corruption, and the far right, which is virtue. Now, various cards that you're going to play and acquire, and some of the game's abilities are either going to give you corruption, which is going to force you to move that marker on the left inward, 
or virtue, which will move the marker on the right to the left. Eventually, they're going to meet. They're going to collide in one spot, and that spot's going to offer you either debts or deeds. Deeds are basically in-game points, whereas mm-hmm. debts are basically in-game negative points. Deeds good, right. debts bad, just like real life. That said, the cards that offer corruption tend to give you wild symbols for your actions, or they're going to yield you a better benefit. So good up front, but you're going to pay for it later versus a deed, which is well, it's a, a little bit... We'll say you weren't playing as powerful cards whenever you were sliding along right. that virtue track, but you get a better payoff for it. There's another factor in Viscounts that stands out to me. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. You know I love a game where players are on a timer, like a game end trigger where players have mm-hmm. control over that. Like um, I always say, you know, Mike hates it whenever a game of Clank ends because somebody – he's always like, oh, yeah, it's because one of you bums are going to rush in and grab the cheap <laughs> artifact and leave. And I'm like, you're not supposed to be able to do it all in the game. You know, giving players agency over the length of the game, that's rich. That's meaty. I like that. Viscounts does that through this deeds and debt stack. Basically, whenever you set up the game, there's a scoring card at the bottom of each of those decks. And once all mm-hmm. the deeds are gone, the game ends or all of the debts are gone. Once one of the piles runs out and that's going to affect final scoring. This goes a step further, depending on what stack runs out first. The other stack has a good payout for majority. So if debts run out first, then there's a scoring for deed majority. Whoever has the most deeds will get 12 points. Second most will get eight points and vice versa. If deeds run out first, they're going to give 12 points to whoever has the most debts. So if you're sitting in a game of four people and three of them are being goody two shoes and not doing anything corrupt and you're the only one doing the corrupt stuff, well, the deeds are going to run out first. And you're going to have the most corruption or you're going to have the most uh, uh, debts in this case. So you're going to score a big 12 point bonus for it. I really like that. (laughs) You have a castle in the center. You've got all these five rings around or five uh, pizza pieces, pie pieces around there. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like you're going to get points for everything. How does it all work together? Uh, Okay. Well, I've had the chance to play this twice so far, and I'm pretty sure this is going to keep coming back. Maybe, maybe you and I will give it a full review at some point. It's got that much meat on the bones. It has the feel of a classic point salad game, but it's one where you can heavily focus on a particular strategy. So you can play your game and say, you know, I'm going to focus on the deck building which everyone should do to some extent, but maybe you're really going to hit the townsfolk that provide benefits, and that's going to be your primary strategy, getting buildings into play, maybe writing manuscripts and scoring for sets of manuscripts, having worker dominance at the castle. You can dabble into everything, or you can really narrow in on one strategy and go that. So, you know, do you go balance with your virtue track? Do you go corruption Mm -hmm. heavy or virtue heavy? I think it depends on the way the game's going. You know, you can't, you can't necessarily go into it and say, this is how I'm going to play. Like you have to adjust a little bit. There's a ton of decisions to make here, which makes it a point salad where I think whoever plays the most optimally within their strategy, particularly in planning out the active townsfolk in their river is going to win. That seems like that's really the main mechanic that drives the game. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say. I expected there to be a little bit more out of the virtue and the corruption, but really it's just a a means of obtaining the two cards, the deeds and and the debts. Mm -hmm. But the thinking, the meat, like where's the game? You know, we said, oh, we should do a segment on where's the game. because What's the one that we were talking about? Viticulture. I said, you know, well, where's the game? It's in the bidding for turn order. We did that a couple episodes. Everything else is... I don't want to say rote, there's strategy involved, but like the real meat is, am I going to get to go first, second, et cetera? How much right, is it right. worth? 
the meet in Viscounts is in that river of three cards because it's going to be fluctuating from turn to turn. You know, you can want to build buildings and you might want to pursue that strategy, but you need the townsfolk that are going to give you the symbols to do so. And it's going to, it's going to fluctuate every turn. A card's going to fall off and a new one's going to come on. There's triggers. Some guys say whenever you play it, it's going to give you some immediate effect. Some of them say whenever it falls off the river, take this immediate effect. There's a lot of tactical in the moment thinking as well as long-term strategic thinking based on that river because anything that you play for benefit right now will still be affecting you next turn and the following and potentially even giving mm. you something whenever it falls off that river. It blew my mind. I was trying to I was trying to get good at how I'm going to pre-plan things and I, I was not good. I'm not good yet. I mean, it's checking off all the boxes in my mind and I'm like I really want to play this game. This sounds like a great game. It's deep. This is a deep game. The only other games that I've played from Shem Phillips, the only one from the North Sea trilogy that I did was uh, we did Raiders of the North Sea. Yeah. And that is much simpler. And I did Architects of the West Kingdom from, I'll call it the Red Seer. Well, the West Kingdom series, one of the red boxes. And right. Architects was a worker placement game that honestly was much simpler. This This one is not a complex game. It's not difficult to learn strategically, it's much deeper, I think. Well, sounds pretty good there. So Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Yes. So much game in that box for 40 bucks. You can't go wrong. Brave adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP. L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot, get 10% off with promo code LEVELUP. I understand you had some run-ins with some xenomorphs. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, you were long with me on this one here as we played Nemesis. Nemesis came out 2018 from Awaken Realms, designer by Adam Kwapinski. Kwapinski. There's a little thing over the end, so I know I, I we don't murdered know his means. name. I'm sorry, Adam. Yeah, this is pretty much as close as you can come to IP infringement <laughs> without getting 20th Century Fox slamming a cease and desist order on you. It's basically alien. The aliens look like a mixture of alien and gene stealers from GW. So if you could go against two bigger corporations than Disney, who owns Fox now, and GW, who owns the Tyranids, I hate to say, you got some um, jewels there to go up against them and skirt that line so closely. I didn't know what to really expect from this whenever I sat down to play. Let me start here. Did you have an expectation coming into it? Everyone's heard of Nemesis. I'm sure you've heard other reviews before. Did you have an expectation before you sat down? I most certainly did. My expectation, I come from, once again, hey, I'm sorry, I'm going back to the miniature gaming here. I had an expectation of Space Hulk. Space Hulk comes out from Games Workshop. You basically play with five Space Marines and Terminator armor. They're basically a single-man platoon. And they're going in, checking out this spaceship that's just floating in space, but it's been overtaken by Tyranids. And they just murder you really, really <laughs> quickly in that game. 
that's what I expected in this. And I did get that. You have a board that has the blueprints of the spaceship. You can see everywhere you're going to go. You don't know what the rooms are. So you're kind of wandering around blankly finding out what the rooms are. So you may go from the cafeteria or the mess hall and boom, you're in the alien nest. (laughs) Well, crap. The other thing then is whenever you flip over a room to see where you're at, there's another uh, little token on top of it to find out where you make noise. And you don't want to make noise on this ship because if you make noise, something's going to find you. Well, then um, it's slightly different. The, the noise is from the roll. The token tells you how many items are in the room. What you do in the game, you're trying to fill your objective. Now, I'm normally playing the, bat, the, the good guy. I want to make sure everyone's safe. I want to make sure that the sun's shining on us. If you ride into the sunset and everything's happy-go-lucky. Well, my objective was get a bunch of items and get off the ship as quickly as possible. You had to be selfish. You had to be greedy. Oh, yeah. And it was such a weird thing. But I was so strangely excited about this. I'm going to pretend like I'm trying to help everyone out. But I'm going (laughs) to run and get on that thing and get the hell off this ship. I had to collect seven items. I think once I got to about six items, it clicked in your head. You're like, I know what Scott's doing. And then you tried to mess up my plan any way you could. Somehow things worked out. I just happened to just boop, jump off that ship just before. You were right next to the escape pod. Okay, so thematically... So much of the theme of this game comes from what everybody's secret objectives are. You get two at the yes. start of the game. Typically, your corporate action is greedy and your pers- or your corporate objective is greedy and your personal objective is typically not as greedy. I'll tell you what mine was. Mine was either I'm the only survivor or Scott is dead. <laughs> so when the first alien appears, you have to pick one of the objectives and that's the one that you're going with. Discard the other. Of course, I'm not going to turn down the chance to have an objective be to kill my co-host. So that's the one I kept. So I kept trying to like make noise, add malfunctions. I even started, it occurred to me, I screwed myself. I started the self-destruct. I'm the one that blew up the ship. I got it. Yeah, I was like, what is he doing? (laughs) Well, it should be a bit of a tell that maybe my objective is the ship can't survive. But I thought, I'm going to start the self-destruct. I'm going to run over to this escape pod because there's not much noise. I can make all kinds. I can bang pots and pans on my way over there. I'm still going to be able to avoid aliens and get off of this ship. The problem was after the self-destruct hit that third marker, three turns after it's Mm -hmm. been started, it can't be stopped and the escape pods automatically open. Yes. That was my mistake because I I found a way for your escape pods to get open. Now, I didn't know what your objective was going to be, but I thought, okay, now he's going to be stuck on the ship, go down with the ship, and it's going to blow up. And I thought, well, I'll just – I'll try and make a whole bunch of noise over there. I'm the captain. I, I unlocked the intercom so I could get on the intercom and be like, King Scott, we need you to go to the laboratory. Yeah. <laughs> and you were just never in a room with a computer. Oh, the theme that comes from it, it's a, it's a storytelling game without having a lick of story involved. You never have to stop and read flavor text or what happens next. And yet you can have a a clear beginning to end of what happened while we were on the good ship Nemesis. Yes. And it's, it's one of those games that whenever you play it, there have been so many of these alien movies that come out. I actually was running a movie through my head as I was playing this game. I was making my own movie up. So I played the mechanic on it. I can't remember the mechanic's name in the first alien. 
but it was just a, a great experience, very thematic. I really think we need to go and play this again and do this as a review for this game because there's so much to this. I think this would be a great 8-bit review. Well, I'll tell you what. I have Lockdown coming in. I got Nemesis with all the mm. expansions and stuff because they had their Lockdown campaign some time ago now. This has to have been a year and a half ago. But I was like, okay, yep, all in because I missed I missed the boat on Nemesis. Yeah. And I played it a couple times. I was like, yep, got to back this whole thing, whole hog. Lockdown's coming in the second wave. So I got all the wave one stuff and that's why we were playing Nemesis. Maybe right. we'll do it like, I don't know, it's supposed to come in January or February. Maybe we'll do a, a double Nemesis January. We'll do Nemesis in our first episode that month and then Lockdown for the next half. Oh, that start off sounds, 2022 with some Xenomorphs. I'm sorry. That sounds intruders. great. No, it says it's one to five players. I didn't look at the solo rules, so I really don't know how this would work out. This game really shines with more people in Absolutely. This game because this is where you run into the backstabbing and the secret objectives. It really, really shines with more people. We played with three people, and I would love to do it with five. I would mm -hmm. love to do it with the full max out and see what happens because that could be absolutely insanity. Yeah, Nemesis, great time. Looking forward to exploring it more. I don't know. I mean, my uh, acquisition disorder is kind of tingling on this. I might have to get a copy myself. So I was invited to a bit of an underground game. Oh, oh, oh wait. Mm. We aren't supposed to talk about Fight Club. Ah. Imagine, Scott, being invited randomly to a house that you've never been before, where there's going to be some people there that you don't even know. You show right. up and it's dark. It's rainy. You know that you're infiltrating a group that has played tonight's game dozens of times. And there are expectations. They know you're the podcast guy. <gasps> the door opens. And it's not even the homeowner that invited you standing there. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. That sensation grows. This may have been a terrible decision. I had the chance to play Scythe with Jimmy and his gang. I keep telling you about Jimmy. I don't think you've met yeah. him yet. Jimmy came to the, the vault meetup last time, and I'm telling you, we've been texting back and forth every day. He's really enthusiastic about gaming. So uh, he invited me over to play a game of Scythe, which uh, from what I gather in their game group is likely their most popular game. So mm -hmm. I had the chance to play as Agricultural Crimea. You'll know what that means if you're a big fan of Scythe. I guess a quick refresher for Scythe, it's like an action selection, resource management game with a tiny bit of exploration and a tiny bit of area control. On your player tableau, you have four different action spaces. You put your marker on one of those spaces, you carry out the top action, and then you have the opportunity to carry out the bottom action. There's asymmetric player powers that honestly feel asymmetric all the way down to the mech sculpts. And you know what, let me stop there. If you don't know how to play Scythe, Everybody else does, so it'll be easy for you to find someone who's going to teach you and be happy to play with you. I'll go over some of the things that I really like about Scythe. Uh, Scythe is an asymmetric game, and it feels asymmetrical. I, that seems like a dumb statement, but what I mean by that is my player has a special ability. Your player has a special ability. Yes, our actions are similar, but they're in different orders on our board, depending on if I'm agricultural or industrial. Plus, maybe in my case, it was I can discard a combat card and use it as a resource. Somebody else might be able to select the same action twice. Very well balanced, very unique to you powers that aren't going to break the game. You can't just hone in on your one power and be like, well, I'm just going to spam this all game because that's my one optimal play. No, you still have to play a solid game. This is just a nice ancillary addition. 
the progression in the game's phenomenal because you're always like upgrading and moving cubes from the from the top to the bottom. So something produces more and something else is cheaper to do. The player interaction is light enough and you can still play around it enough that I don't think someone, you know, there's like a subset of gamers that they don't want interaction, like they don't want conflict. Right, right. Scythe's conflict is kind of gentle. Not yes. only can you control it, like, well, I'm not going to leave a juicy space with resources from this walk-in and steal, but even if they do, they lose popularity if they displace your workers. So it's encouraged because you get a star for attacking someone, but it's also kind of discouraged because you lose popularity. So a little bit of player interaction, and it's not too take thatty. Make sense? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, your army is on the border of your country, and you're all standing there, like, with your chest out, holding your weapons, going, yeah, come on. Come on, but you don't really do anything. Yeah, it's more of a resource management game, allocating your your action. Maybe an action efficiency game. If I'm going to take an action, I want to be able to do the top and the bottom. And I want to plan out my turns so that next turn I'll be able to take an action that lets me do the top and the bottom. You don't want to have too many turns where you're just doing the top thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Scythe isn't one of my favorites, though. Honestly, like there are times where it can come off as multiplayer solitaire, where you're just trying to be efficient with your board and so is everyone else. Everything you do is progress towards a star, which is fine. But the difference between a massive turn and a mediocre one or opting to do this versus that, it never feels like there's this big uh, range uh, of whether or not the action was good based on the outcome, because most outcomes are something decent and progress towards a star. It's like, well, so then we're all kind of progressing along this ladder at roughly the same pace, no matter what we do. There are differences and you know, there's going to be a winner at the end of the game. There's going to be big point differentials. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I feel like that's a, a fair statement. Also, the end game scoring. I always spread out my workers and my mechs until I'm controlling like 10 or more spaces. And you got to make sure that your popularity is in that third tier. Yeah. In doing so, you're going to have so many more points for controlling territories than someone who's trying to get their bonus points from resources or from having one extra star than you do. So much so that I feel like it's an obligation to every player. You've got to, right before the end of the game, spread out. And that's what I did with this underground group. And I actually, I came away with the win. So I was, I was really proud of myself. They're never going to invite me back. (laughs) (laughs) I did, however, put up a Facebook post because I was enamored with this game aside. We had a lot of fun. They blinged this thing out. They had the Stonemeyer coins. They had the the big board with the add-on side of it. Mm, yes. He had the insert, the wooden insert. He oh, had yeah. the exploration tokens that are the glass bees. And oh, he wow. said to me, it's like, it's funny. Every time we play this, one of us gets has a little too much beer and we end up buying you know some other upgrade for the game. <laughs> and amongst those... Let me tell you what. They had a 3D printed factory. You know that factory space in the middle oh, of the yeah, board inside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had one that was 3D printed. It, make a fist, Scott. That's how big that factory was. <laughs> this thing, it was imposing. It cast a shadow. He's like, yeah, one of us got too drunk and we ordered a factory and we overpaid. And I was like, well, I got to know. He's like, it was $42 plus shipping. <laughs> I was like, what? Some dude 3D printed this in his basement for five bucks and uh, you, well, nevertheless. He could have bought Viscounts of the West Kingdom for that. Thank you. Good plug. (laughs) I like that. You know what? Sometimes a game that, like, side, the the gist of my post on Facebook was sometimes you might have grown a little tired of a game or a game might not be 
as good in your mind or, or scratch the same itch that it used to. Mm-hmm. And then you play that blinged out version. And I'm telling you, I got immersed into this thing. And part of it was that stupid factory in the middle, but that all the pieces were like upgraded pieces. And I asked people, you know, what are some of the ones that, what are some games that come to mind for you for like, wow, it's that much better when you upgrade the pieces. Most common responses were Orleone and Quacks of Quedlinburg for the tokens, changing yes, them yes. out, changing out the chits and getting the, the plastic mm-hmm. pieces. Also, I wanted to point out, Jimmy had, uh, he dealt combat cards at the beginning of the game. And one right. of mine was folded in half and it had a crease right in the middle. Well, it wasn't folded whenever he dealt it to me, but at some point it was right. folded. So there's a crease right in the middle. I was like, well, I hope nobody knows what. And like, before I even finished my sentence, Jimmy's like, oh, it's a three. <laughs> and I looked at it. I was like, come on, you're gonna, you guys are going to pin me with the card that you know what it is. <laughs> so I mentioned that, you know what, if you message Stonemeyer, I bet you they'll send you another copy of this card. Because I was teasing. I was like, well, I got to fold every card in half now so that they all... <laughs> <laughs> and he messaged Stonemeyer, and he's uh, they're sending him uh, no charge replacement cards for two of the cards that were creased. So I thought I'd oh, point that's that fantastic. out as well. Had a great time with it, and it was a lot of fun to revisit Scythe. Well, that was going to be my question there. I know we played it probably about a year ago. We did everything with the flying ships ago. and everything like that. Oh, uh, at least a year ago, it had to have been. And I was just wondering how it still lived up to your expectations. Do you still enjoy it? Is it one, like playing this now, does it make you want to get out your cop, put it on the table and revisit it again? Or is it kind of like you visited, you walked around, you saw the sights and I can move on until we come back to it again sometime in the future. More the latter. I I feel like I've played everything that Scythe has to offer. I have the app. And once you right. get a game on an app, it kills the – for me anyway, it kills the physical form because I'll sit and I'll play against a couple of computers, a couple bots, and I'll play six times in a day. By the end of the month, I've played it 60 times. And when game mm-hmm. day rolls around and I get to pick a game to put on the table, I'm not going to go with the thing that I've played 60 times. And I know you know, I've gotten to explore each of the strategies. So it, it kind of killed it in that regard. I do have the Fenris expansion. After we played last year, I was like, wow, this was a huge hit for everyone. Kind of seen it all aside, but I'd be okay with getting Fenris and introducing that new stuff. Uh, and right. that, that's a campaign mode. You get, to, I think it's eight or 10 sessions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they introduce new things with each game that you play. And I've never done that. So I would be interested in that. I immediately went out and bought Fenris, and it's been sitting in the garage for over a year now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something we're going to have to do. That sounds awesome. I think there's minstrels at my door. <laughs> Scott, time for the top 100. We've got. All right, let's see it. What, where we got here? Okay, quick one today. There's only three notable changes. We keep following Dune Imperium, and it's up a whopping one spot to number 29. Pax Premier, second edition, up to 56. And Eclipse, second dawn for the galaxy, which costs way too much money and is impossible to find. Number 59. I don't even know how it's up to number 59 because you can't find it. There can't be that many people that have even played the darn thing. Can't wait to get oh. my hands on it. It's up to 59. But we've got a happy birthday chart. Nemesis, two years. Aw. Concordia, seven years. And for nine years, Android Netrunner. Oh, that one gets me. I love the game. I hate it whenever they did it with Fantasy Flight Games. They came out with a new edition. There was like two expansions that came out, and then it was done. They stopped making it. Oh. 
But I have heard in news that Watsi, where it started out, Wizards of the Coast, is supposedly trying to get it back and get it started again. Oh, yeah. The new magic set coming out is, what is it? Kamigawa. They're revisiting Kamigawa. Kamigawa from back in the day. The new one's supposed to be something like Kamigawa Neon Futures or something like that. So they're taking magic into the future. So they're trying to think of this could be possibly a way of bringing Netrunner back in again. Yeah, Netrunner is a great asymmetric game where one player plays a runner trying to get into the corporation and sneak all their secret files out where the corporation puts up all these firewalls and ways of tracking down the runners. Great game, great thematics with this game. Top notch. I really would love to see it come back again. You want to hear a funny story about the old champions of Kamigawa set in Magic? What? Remember how they'd always come out in blocks? They would call it a block. So you'd have your big set, small set, small set. Yeah. (laughs) Usually that people would just use the initials. So like Mirrodin Dark Steel Scourge was MDS block. And sometimes you'd have something like uh, like it would actually make a word. I can't think of one off the top of my oh, head. But God, it was I see where this is going. Champions of Kamigawa. Uh, <laughs> before it was a whole block and you just played the main set, it was C O K. And it was <laughs> I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Let's do the walkthrough for our review game today, Dog Park. Designed by Jack and Lottie Hazel and recently a smash success for Birdwood Games on Kickstarter, Dog Park is a game in which one to four players recruit pups and take them on a walk through the park. The game plays in roughly one hour and at the end of four rounds, the player with the most reputation is the winner. Now in this game, each round you're going to be bidding points to recruit a dog, then paying resources to get the collar on whichever dogs you have available for walking, then collecting resources along the walking path before finally heading back home and scoring points for the dogs walked. When beginning the game, there are several factors that are going to influence how you play, so let's have a look at those now. At the top of the main board, you'll draw and place four random forecast cards. These are basically variables for any given round of the game. The card in the first slot, for example, might offer bonus points for anyone who walked a terrier breed. Next, you'll randomly set the breed expert cards in their slots on the right side of the board. These are simple scoring opportunities based on the dogs of a breed type in players' kennels at the end of the game. The board has set scoring in decreasing amounts, so the breed in the first space will score 8 points, and each one after that scores one less. Obviously, this is going to vary from game to game based on the random placement of the breed expert cards. The location bonus deck is placed to the left of the board and the top card is revealed. This simply adds some bonuses to the walking path, which is used during the walking phase, and we'll get there. Each player is dealt two objective cards and they keep one. As you might imagine, these are endgame points you can score if you meet various conditions. Players will each receive a kennel board to house the eight dogs that they'll acquire during play, as well as a lead board, which has slots for up to three dogs that you can walk each round. Each player also begins the game with some reputation and some resources. Finally, shuffle up that stack of lovable doggos and deal a number face-up into the field on the main board based on the number of players. Now you're all set to play, so let's have a look at what happens in each of the game's four rounds. We begin with the recruitment phase. This is where each player will use a dial to secretly bid a number of points. Then they're going to place that dial underneath one of the revealed dog cards in the field. If you're uncontested, you simply pay the number of points on your dial and you acquire the dog. If you're contested, though, the bids are revealed. 
The winning bid takes the dog and loses the amount of points based on their bid. The loser only loses one point and will take the next available uncontested dog in the field. When this is finished, the field is refilled. Then players will perform this action again. At the end of the phase, each player will have two new dog cards in their kennel. The second phase is selection. This is where each player can pay the resource cost on their dog cards to get a collar on it and take it for a walk. As you might imagine, many dog cards offer bonuses for going on a walk. The third phase is walking. Each player's walker meeples placed to the far left of a nine space track on the main board. In player order, you can move your walker one to four spaces. Each space has a resource reward for stopping there, but not so fast. If you stop where another player already is, you'll lose a reputation. So there are some tactical decisions to make during the walk. Also, players are incentivized to get to the end of the path first, as points are scored based on when you leave the path. Three for being the first off the path, all the way down to negative one for being last. You may have stopped on a ton of spaces and gained a ton of resources, but there is a price for being last person off the path. Finally, we have the home phase. In this phase, all dogs are returned to players' kennels with a walked token placed on them. Then players gain two reputation for each dog walked that turn, and each player loses reputation for each dog in their kennel that does not have a walked token. Before the next round begins, the new location bonus card is revealed, new pups are added to the field, and the first player token passes. At the end of four rounds, the game will end, and it's on to final scoring. Players will have accumulated reputation throughout play, but they're now going to add reputation for completed objectives. Some dogs have endgame scoring, which you'll add now, and those breed expert cards get scored. Finally, you get a reputation for every two leftover resources you have, and the player with the most reputation will win the game. Now this is the part where I always say there's so much more to a game than I just went over, but honestly that quick walkthrough basically covered everything you need to know. Obviously, much of the gameplay here emerges from the variables it's set up, what objective cards you're dealt, the breed expert scoring, and the dogs that you're going to see during the game from a deck of over 220 unique cards. Is it good, though? Is it fun? Let's find out the level-up way as we give the 8-bit breakdown to Dog Park. Thank you so much for the walkthrough of our 8-bit breakdown review today, Dog Park. You got a chance to play this on Tabletopia, correct? Yeah, Tabletopia this time. So the first one we always start off with, art and components. I'm expecting to see a bunch of dogs, a bunch of dog biscuits. What am I looking for? Well, they got what, tennis what balls do do and bones, sure. Okay. Before we dive into the meat and taters of this review, let's get this out of the way right now because I'll be drawing this correlation a few times and it's most appropriate here. The art and the components comparable to Wingspan. And that mm -hmm. is some fine company. You have a mm -hmm. giant deck of cards that are all unique, over 220 dog cards. Wow. They each have realistic art. It's not a cartoon. Think Wingspan with the realistic birds. You have a realistic depiction of whatever dog breed is on the card. It's not a silhouette mm -hmm. or anything like that. It looks like a painting. The resources, oh, wow. you've got toys, bones, balls, and sticks. They're not chits. They're actually little pieces. For lack of a better way to put it, Scott, they knocked the components out of the park. You can see them on Kickstarter. Wow. Well, you can go back and see the Kickstarter. This is one that recently ended, and I know that they have a late pledge available right now. Your Walker Meeples, screen printed. The reputation marker for your player that shows your scoring, it's a little dog. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, it's a little like dog Meeple. The components, top notch. 
theme and immersion, how are you really going to get thematic with a dog park? It's tricky, I'm sure, aside from the art and whatnot. My first thought actually was that the theme was trying to be something that most people love so that they could get away with a so-so game. And as long as it has the dog theme, well, people are going to love it. I'm always skeptical. You see a game that like Isle of Cats, which is a great game, or Calico, mm-hmm. which is a also a fine game. In the back of my head, I'm like, okay, so they're just appealing to cat people because they didn't make something great. You know, I thought maybe right. the theme was hiding a game that might not be up to what I would expect for a hobby game. In my skepticism, I try to envision the game with a different theme, like space exploration. Like instead of walking dogs, maybe you're picking up passengers for your spaceship and taking them on (laughs) tours of the galaxy. Or maybe instead of recruiting dogs, you're recruiting soldiers or dwarves, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? I think going with a traditional overdone theme would kind of make the game blend in. This way it does, in fact, pop out on the shelf as something different. And thankfully, there's a solid game in the box. Do you think it's going to hurt it by being a dog park and not being a spaceship gathering things through the galaxy? Maybe for some. Overall, I think it's going to help it. I think it's going to help it tremendously. And here again, I'll draw that correlation to wingspan. I'm sure there's people that are like, yeah, I just don't care about the game because I don't care about birds. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to uh, take my day of immersion and fun with my buddies collecting birds. You know, we want to we want to go to war in the galaxy. We want to we want to dive into the cave and you know discover things. Whatever you might be doing, whatever. Like I, I don't want to say generic theme, but standard board game trope theme. They mm-hmm. are what they are because that tends to be what a lot of gamers enjoy. There's a lot of people that love their dogs, so I mean, there's there's an audience definitely out there for it. This is one that is still going to apply to a lot of game. Look, I would prefer space exploration. I don't hate dogs, though. I'm not against playing a dog game. Mm-hmm. I think someone like my wife, who's like, you know what? I don't want to have galactic battles. She'll play the dog game. <laughs> She'll ask me to buy the dog game, in fact. That's where this is actually going to help this game way, way more. You're going to have a, you're gonna have 5% of gamers who are like, I'm not playing a game about walking dogs. But you're going to have tons of folks that wouldn't, pick up a hobby board game but they see that dog and they're like okay as far as complexity it seems like it'd be a little bit light that it's not going to have anything that deep in it is it able to spread over the two sections here of non-gamers and gamers how does that work out for the complexity complexity is tricky because I think that the designers kind of knew that they couldn't make this super involved, nor should a game about walking dogs be super involved. You're not going to have a tech tree to figure out what kind of collar you're going to be putting on the dog. So the mechanics of the game are actually really simple. It's the variables and the input randomness injected into a simple rule set that actually make this game kind of deep. You're not going to walk away from Dog Park feeling like you didn't have any agency in the game or that luck won the day. You have to make decisions. The biggest one, that meat and taters of the game, the biggest differentiator from turn to turn is the recruit phase because you're bidding for the dogs in the field and which one you're going to collect. That's your primary way to directly impact your round as well as other players' rounds. Having to weigh the dog that you want to recruit to your kennel versus the number of points that it's going to score is a decision that doesn't come it doesn't come as easily as some of the other decisions in dog park. When you're walking the dog, it's like, okay, I want the next step. Oh, I want uh, two steps away because I don't want to end on the same space as someone else and lose a point. 
I like complex games with complex rule sets, but I also like simple rule sets that become complex based on the variables that are introduced. And that is what Dog Park does. Looking at the game that we touched on earlier here, Viscounts of the West Kingdom. So if that's a 10 and the old card game War is a zero, where would this fall into it with complexity? Did you just call Viscounts a 10? Okay, so let's just use that scale. Well, just from our, from our show that we've done today that Excellent. we're doing right now. This would be a five, somewhere right in between, maybe even on, on the, the lower end of five. It's just not complex. I can teach this to a 10-year-old, and they're going to understand how to play. Are they going to be good? No, because they can't weigh the, the, the dogs that are available for recruiting like I can. Um, mm-hmm. They can't keep track of you know, what is their personal objective and how many terriers have I walked like I can, but they can still understand how to play. And they're going to be on par with other 10-year-olds that play the game. It's not going to be too tricky or too, you know, it's not spreadsheety at all. It's very simple to play. All right. Now, I'm not sure how this one worked out because playing on Tabletopia, normally someone knows the rules or the rules are thrown in there. What about the rule book? Well, you're right. I, I was taught this game, but I did look up the rulebook and it's available on BGG as well as on their Kickstarter. It's stunning. They have large pictures. They have examples. It has a yellow box called Walker Wisdom. And whenever you see it, it sort of breaks that fourth wall that we talk about where the development team mm-hmm. says something simple but constructive like, remember, offers are made with players' reputations, so they must be placed wisely. You know, that that little hint that, that some people like. We saw that in Grand Austria Hotel, for example. So you have your blue boxes for examples. They have gameplay variants in the back. And one thing that I love, and Wingspan did this, there's an – I keep referencing Wingspan. There's an (laughs) index in the back that breaks down the cards. So if you're like, wait a minute, do I have this right? There's an index in the back that gives you every single card and exactly how it plays. Not that it's hard to figure out. But in case you have any additional questions, you, you have the answer already in there. I did my research, and I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure this is Birdwood Games' first game. Their rulebook mm. is something that you would expect from an established company. They they obviously knew what they were doing, or they hired someone who did to put this together, because you can't not understand how to play this game after... Scott, you ever read a rulebook, and then you put the rulebook down, and you're like, well, going to have to set this up and play it, or now I'm going to have to watch a video. Yeah. Not in Dog Park. You're gonna, you oh. can read the rulebook. You'll know exactly how to play. Well, I think you kind of hit on our next bit, the learning curve. Yeah, it's just not a hard game. Four phases over four rounds. Four phases per each of the four rounds. The graphic design is clean. It's intuitive. Dogs have a cost to walk them, for example. So if you recruit a pup, you've got to, say, pay a bone and a ball in order to put the lead on them so that they can go for a walk. (laughs) And I mean, you could clearly see which one's a bone and which one is a ball. I think your gamer group is going to understand the game before you start playing, before turn one. Your casual game group, they're going to get it after round one. Mm-hmm. Total non-gamer. They'll know exactly how to play after one round. Sounds good. What about the replayability of the game? We have a variable scoring for the breeds of dogs, the majorities of each in the game. There's a giant deck of unique cards, of which only some of them are going to be in any given game. The mm-hmm. discovery element is massive here. Whenever I say that, like we've listened to other reviews and I'm sure that we've had some where they, yeah, you ever hear and they say, well, you play it twice, you're going to see every card in that deck. Right. First of all, that's not going to happen here. 
you're going to see a portion, eight per player. So in a four-player game, you'll see one, what, 10% of the cards. Mm -hmm. So you're not even going to see them all. Even after you've played the game a dozen times and you've seen them all, there's still discovery. Because, well, I saw this card, but I've never had it in play with that card. Ooh, combo. You know what I mean? The ability to find interesting combinations of cards from one play to the next is going to keep that discovery fresh. You have two objectives dealt randomly to each player at the start of the game, and you keep one. We've seen that in another game that I'm going to try not to continue mentioning. (laughs) That's a variable, and that's going to make your play different. And that's going to have you weighing, well, what are the breed scorings at the end? Where are all the random – what are the round stipulations that we see from round to round, that, that deck of variables? This game is very replayable, not because the simple rule set is one that I want to keep playing in. No, the simple mm-hmm. rule set makes it easy to get it to the table. It's the way, like I said, that the injected variables make each game different that's going to make me want to keep getting it to the table. It's an easy teach, and it's going to feel fresh every time. It sounds like a great game, but with all great games, there always comes something that doesn't sit right. That brings us to our downsides. You're segueing me to downsides? number seven. Ooh, this one's tough. Uh, so much of what I said is good. I suppose if you don't like the things that I'm loving here, then obviously that can be a, a downside for you. Uh, back to that comparison, what's the biggest dig on Wingspan, Scott? Um, I would say just the idea that it's mostly like everyone's playing a solo game, no real interaction with the other players. Exactly. It has a a lack of a player interaction. We hear that. Dog Park has it in the bidding for the recruits, and I still think that's the most gamey portion of the game, but it also has it in the walking phase. You can cost a player a point if you stop on a spot first. They're going to lose a point if they stop in the same spot. I guess, I, I mean, I don't love dogs. I have nothing against them, but I'm not like, oh, dog game, I, I need to buy this. But it is a refreshing theme. It's some differentiation on the shelf. And I, I think most gamers like that, but the theme might not appeal to someone. I would prefer to be building a civilization or clashing for Mechatol Rex. But when I deviate <laughs> from the standard themes that we see in board games, Dog Park does hit the spot. The obvious potential downside is that some folks when they do deviate might not want to go to well let's play a game about walking dogs was it fun and who is this for scott i told you that we had to work in we weren't originally going to do a review this episode because it's going to end up going long and i said no we have to get this game in it is tremendous i can get my wife to play with me but i can break it out on a cutthroat Mm -hmm. game i can have you and the lobsters over no one's going to feel like we had a mellow chill time I don't like when a game is touted as relaxing. If I want to relax, I'll take a nap. When it's game time, I want to use my brain. I want conflict. I want calculated decisions. I want risk and reward. Dog Park's got it. This game checked every box for me. Now, who's a Wow. (laughs) No, I'm not kidding, man. This is one that... Scott, I might not even late pledge because I'm confident this is going to start showing up in Barnes & Noble and Target. It is that appealing. It's that good. Who's it for, on the other hand? The theme has broad appeal. The complexity is low enough that someone grabbing it off of a shelf on a whim isn't going to be overwhelmed. It's tactically deep enough that gamers aren't going to turn up their noses. It's just an amazing game. I suppose I got to say something. So the box says age is 10 plus, and I think that's fair. Don't let Mm -hmm. the playful theme fool you, though. This won't be a walk in the park for small children. Nothing? You see what I did there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A walk in the park? (laughs) 
in entertainment. You never want to work with small children or animals. So you're putting them both <laughs> together. Scott, I was enamored from this game from the very first playthrough. It checks off all the boxes. I think the designers nailed it. For what it's worth, uh, the designers, Jack and Lottie Hazel, they actually have a podcast, Board Games with My Wife. They're on their third season, so they've clearly been gaming for a while. I'm happy mm-hmm. to see such a great game from this couple. It's just phenomenal. Well, that's that, that's wonderful to hear, and I'm looking forward to it. All right, so that is Dog Park from Birdwood Games coming out uh, this year, 2022. So got some time to gather your shekels up, put them away in a little can, and save it up for whenever it comes out. Yeah, late pledge to this thing. It is that good. You will not be disappointed with Dog Park. All right, adventurers, it's time for our Academy segments with Archmage Andrew, mm-hmm. and he's going to be going over a game set in World War One. I. I think you're going to really enjoy this little segment here. You know what? I saw the size of the file when he sent it to me. It's not super lengthy, but I was like, oh, we got to get that down to like eight minutes or so. I didn't cut a single thing. Captivating. And we hope you enjoy today's Academy segment. Hi guys, I'm Andrew Davidson with AsPromyAbility.com. December 25th, 1914, France, Western Front. Hey, Merry Christmas! More fog rolled in again today, blending the snow with the sky. Today's fog is worse than yesterday, but I don't mind. The weather is quite representational of this soldier's heart. Bleak, cold, foggy. Most of my friends from back home, along with myself, because I am bloody stupid, signed up to fight in this bugger of a mess. The operatives, the ones who signed up, me and my mates, told cadets like us that the fighting would be over by Christmas. (laughs) Well, here we are, dug in, heads down, enveloped in the fog with no end in sight. I am the last of my mates from back home, sadly. Yesterday, Todd Holloway was dragged away, the result of an extreme case of trench foot, from what I've been told. Even in this cold weather, it remains impossible for one to keep their feet clean, warm, and dry. He'll lose the foot, most likely. Not a combat injury, poor bloke. It's a sad state of affairs for old Todd, to lose a part of yourself in war without charging a line or firing a single round. Last week, Billy Brisbane and Laurel McKinney both wiped off the face of the earth in a split second. One minute they're there, standing 30 meters from you, then they're gone, snatched from the ground. We had no bodies to bury. Now I only have memories to bury. Memories of Billy and Laurel. Adrian Billingsworth, a fine chap and my closest friend, lost his mind to the war. You get used to it. I guess, uh, all the death and madness. After so long, most chaps around here will become nothing more than part of the earth, either in the trench or in the grave. You see, the things people don't realize back home is that this war takes more from people than lives. It takes everything. If you're not killed by a disease, trench foot, nibbled to death by the rats, hypothermia, shot by a German sniper, smattered into a thousand pieces by artillery, 
then you're killed by madness, complete and utter madness. There is no way out of this mess for us, even if we do somehow make it back home. Things are quite grim. Nobody has to say it. I can see it on their half-frozen faces and gaunt figures wrapped underneath uniform jackets. They stumble by me like skeletons, sucking a drag from an unlit cigarette, shaking and mumbling prayers. Last night, something strange happened. Word had been sent down from command that the German army were planning some sort of a surprise attack. Everyone was to be on high alert. Bloody mess of a thing, this war. Last night, across no man's land, we could see lights coming from the German trench about a hundred yards off. Normally, this would be incredibly frowned upon as it gives away positions to artillery commanders. We waited, dug into the sides of our trench, two new lads next to me on each side, our guns at the ready. Was the intel correct? Were the bastards planning some surprise attack? Then it happened. There were sounds from the distance, followed by a voice. Still a nacht, hilliger nacht, alles is ruhig und alles is hell. The one voice turned to ten, then twenty, then hundreds. Hundreds of Germans singing Silent Night in German. Voices from down the way, in my own trench, began singing the same melody, but in English. Together, English and German soldiers sang Christmas carols. When we finished, the Germans, who are quite civilized blokes, as more of them know more English than any one of us daft-headed war boys knows how to speak any German, began to ease out of their trench to wish us a Merry Christmas. Some ventured far enough out of their hole in the earth to display a primitively designed Christmas tree. Was this a part of the German trap command spoke of? What happened next does not make a lick of sense to any soldier, but it happened. Our regiment was given specific standing orders to shoot any enemy who climbs out of their trench. However, there was no order not to fire, and yet nobody did. There was nothing. Not a single shot was fired. In fact, some of the lads started clapping at the sight of the Christmas tree. Earlier today, Christmas Day, the Germans crawled out from their trenches and began burying their dead. Not a bullet was discharged. In response, with little discussion, we crawled out into no man's land to bury our dead. We saw a respite from the fog and... It wasn't too long before the two militant groups, English and German, were celebrating Christmas together. These deadly bastards and brutish warmongers hugged us, and, and we hugged them back. We exchanged gifts, mostly bits of food, cigars, or cigarettes, and we drank together. I looked around. There were so many soldiers from each side who removed themselves from their trenches, that a friendly game of football spontaneously broke out between some of the soldiers. <laughs> I spoke with many fine German soldiers today. We embraced and wished each other a Merry Christmas. It felt good to be out of the trench. It felt good to move about in the countryside 
as battered to hell as it was, and feel no fear. We walked in no man's land and felt like we were men again, not weapons of war. One German, Carl Junger, spoke perfect English. Carl and I sat down and conversed for quite a long time. He lit my cigarette and I lit his, and we just sat and talked. Carl spent most of his life as a waiter in London, which is why his English was impeccable. He returned to Munich, where he was born, to assist his dying mother. Not long after his relocation, war broke out, and now he's sitting on a lump of dirt next to me, wearing a German uniform. A few times the football came our way, distracting us from our conversation, but we kicked it back and continued on. We talked about life in the trench, family, food, and, of course, women. Towards the end of the conversation, Carl reached out his hand to me. It was an envelope. He asked me to deliver a letter to his fiance in Manchester. The German army is not keen on sending letters to the enemy's homeland, he said with an awkward and yet pleasing smile. It was good to see men smile again. Out of instinct, I reached up with a burning cigarette in between my shivering fingers and I took the envelope. I never intended to send the letter. Why would I forward mail for a German soldier? But now, back in our familiar trenches, the sun folding behind the horizon, I'm holding the letter in my hand, examining it, turning it from end to end. It's addressed to Christine Keller. Gosh, what a beautiful name. She's probably a beautiful woman with bright blue eyes. When I close my eyes, I can see her. Yeah, I can see her walking arm in arm with Carl. I've decided to send Carl's letter with the evening collection. When tomorrow comes and Christmas is over, me and my wardrobes go back to rifling and bombing the Germans until they surrender or fall back. I hope Carl makes it through. I hope he gets to wait tables again. I hope he gets to stare into Christine's beautiful blue eyes. I hope, for it is the least a man can do for a fellow soldier of honor. Private Nicholas James Baldwin, 2nd Bedfordshire's RFA. What you just listened to is a work of fiction. I know, I know. Thanks for ruining the immersion. You're welcome. However, while the diary entry of a soldier concept was composed by myself, a chance to flex my creative writing muscles, the content within the diary is historically accurate. I read Stanley Weintraub's Silent Night, The Remarkable Christmas Truce of 1914, jotted down information that stuck with me, and, uh, well, my muse performed the rest. Now, keep in mind, the Great War had only begun during the summer of 1914, with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his beloved bride, Europe broke out into war faster than teenage acne. The soldiers knew who the enemy was. As with any major military conflict, propaganda degenerated the enemy on both sides. The Christmas truce of 1914 remains an isolated event, frozen in history, uh, pun intended, I guess. During the Christmas of 1915, as the Great War would rage on without any submission from 1914 
until 1918, troops performed a mild attempt at truce. It was, by and large, a complete failure. By then, with the passing of another year, the conflict grew serious. At the Battle of the Somme, In 1916, British troops suffered more casualties in the first day of fighting than the entirety of the Revolutionary War. That's right. In a single day, 57,000 British troops were, as Doc Brown would explain to Marty McFly in Back to the Future, erased from existence. The Grizzled and the Grizzled Armistice Edition are cooperative card-based games. I'm going to be talking about the Grizzled Armistice Edition as opposed to the Grizzled, which is just a single standalone game. The Armistice Edition allows players the chance to survive the Great War by playing a narrative-driven campaign version of the original base game. A campaign game is a lot like reading a novel. Consider each play session a single chapter within a much larger story. With each new chapter comes new components, new rules, and objectives for players to pursue. The Grizzled Armistice Edition provides 10 games where each session replicates a significant battle during the war. And yes, the Battle of the Psalm is contained within the campaign. In the story of the game, each player takes on the role of a French soldier. Your soldiers hail from a small, unnamed French village. On August 2nd, 1914, something occurs. In the village square, the group of inseparable friends contemplate, stunned, the general mobilization order plastered to the town hall. For many weeks now, the papers had become worrisome, but the brutality of the announcement surprises everyone. Without having any idea of the hell in which they'll be plunged, they promise each other that they'll survive and come back together no matter what happens. Unfortunately, the reality they'll have to face will be much, much worse than their deepest fears. As the game is fully cooperative, your characters are all childhood friends, helping each other stay alive, stay sane, and live to see the end of the war. The Grizzled Armistice Edition is a card game. On their turn, players play cards to the middle of the table, otherwise known as No Man's Land. The goal is to deplete their hand so they can draw threat cards from a shuffled deck. The amount of cards contained within the deck changes from game to game. During the war, communication is limited, and so is your communication with fellow players. Uh, No table talk allowed. The communication restriction turns the grizzled into a sequential puzzle of card plays. If players manage to draw and play every threat card in the deck, They have successfully survived the battle, and you move on to the next chapter in the campaign. Yeah, sound like fun? This game is brutal. Holy Moses. Winning a game of the Grizzled Armistice Edition is similar to drinking warm milk with lard in it. I mean, it's possible, but not bloody likely going to happen. As players progress through the campaign, the game introduces more restrictions, more things to worry about, and more ways to die or lose your French fried marbles. However, that's not to say that the Grizzled is not a rewarding game. If players can coordinate their card plays, minimize losses while maximizing their gains, a win may be in their future. 
because the game is terribly punishing. It only makes the wins all the more satisfying. You see, it's the age-old sweet and sour speech. The sweetness of victory cannot be enjoyed without the sourness of defeat. Without one, there is no defined emotion for the other. And thanks to the grizzled, I haven't endured a giant bag of Sour Patch Kids to get to my sweet cherry pie. Can you survive the horrors of the Great War? I know I can. Scott, what did you think of that? It really makes you appreciate being a decent human being. That you know everyone has a level that they want to be a decent human being, but outside forces change them. Mm-hmm. And being able to get to that that base level, that's just such an amazing thing. This story really nailed it on the head. Yeah. And you know what? The Grizzled being a very thematic approach. To, well, I don't even want to say it's super thematic. It's a mechanical game, but you yep. can't not play that and understand what's happening and, and the perils that you're – I mean, you're trying to keep each other sane and alive while in trench warfare. Yeah, Andrew's got a way of telling a story so that when we play a game like The Grizzled, we can get a little peek into the lives of the characters that we're assuming. Yeah, very much so. I mean, whenever you have things like shell shock, thinking people going through that – type of environment and living through it. You nailed it whenever you said that the Grizzled is just a very mechanical game. But whenever you add the story to it, it really makes you appreciate what those people did. And I like the fact that there's that silver lining to this story, a human mm-hmm. element, in spite of the fact that and these folks are put into a position where they're they're killing each other. They're different nationalities. Right. They don't like each other. And yet, in the most dire of circumstances, there's a human element that comes out in sort of a mutual respect. Boy, what what a tale. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yes, thank you very much for that. Scott, today's discussion is going to be a little bit of a back and forth between you and I. This comes in response to a King of Average video. And I call out the king of average, but we also saw one from Board Game Co. And it's a trend that we see a lot in the industry about board games being too expensive. And I I sent you the video and, and the gist of it basically is that games have increased in price, price is becoming prohibitive. There are a number of external factors which he mentions, but his solutions seem to put the pressure on board game producers to alter their methods to appease gamers who would like a cheaper alternative. Companies mm-hmm. should offer their games with a cheaper alternative, like a standee version. Otherwise, they're basically saying that you can't play this game because you can't afford it. That was the video. And, and he mentioned, uh, I'll, I'll say, Iridia, for example, because we had Iridia not too long ago. MSRP, yes. $240. The Kickstarter campaign had it down, down to $165 plus shipping. So I thought, why don't we sit down and talk a little bit about our board games, in fact, getting too expensive? Who is the onus on to do something about that? Does something need to be done? And just sort of banter back and forth a little bit about the uh, price of gaming. Now, adventurers, we don't normally like to go into saying what prices are and how much a game is. And my God, I wouldn't pay that much for it or anything like that because it's all subjective. It all depends on your position, mm-hmm. what you're able to do. 
It's not a thing that we're going on to saying how it's going to affect a certain person, but basically it's going to be more along the lines of just in general, how the prices of games have changed so drastically lately. And continue to increase. Yes. So some good examples. Um, yeah, the New Descent. That was a big one. Yes, New Descent 3.0. That one was MSRP 180 bucks. I mentioned Iridia. Mm-hmm. Chip Theory Games. I mean, a lot of stuff with them is just really, really huge. Basically anything Chip Theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, have you? I mentioned Storm Sunder early in the podcast run, like in in an early episode. Storm Sunder's mm-hmm. All In Pledge was over six hundred dollars. It's the FOMO that they are really working with right now and playing on everyone. Things you think for those that don't know, FOMO, fear of missing out. It's just the whole idea of you need to hurry up and get this. If you don't get it, you're never going to get it again. I hate whenever they do something like that. I know currently, right now, the Masters of the Universe, Protecting Eternia, or whatever, the Battle for Eternia. Yeah. I looked at that, and I'm sorry, I do not see me getting $110 worth of entertainment out of that game. What would you pay for it? I'd say maybe $55, $60 bucks for it. Okay. What can they That'd take the out there. of it to get it to 55 or 60 They need to keep what's in there. That base game needs to be in there. The thing that I don't find being fair is them saying that it's $110, plus we're going to add all this extra stuff in there. Guess what? I don't care if I get all that extra stuff. Give me a fun game, a simple game, a game that I can play over and over again that I don't need to keep adding stuff to in order to make that game more fun. Huh. Well, let's rewind a little bit. Let's talk about what drives the price of games. Well, there's a lot of things that can drive the price. Miniatures is the big one. That's the hot topic right now. Everything has to have miniatures. Mm-hmm. You've got shipping right now that is getting out of control. You've got things where they're doing double-layered boards. They're doing development of apps to go along with the games. Apps so, are a big one. Uh, and you know what? Era. I think a lot of people discard that. First of all, you have art on the actual components of the game, but the app will have art in it. Sometimes it has voice in it. Somebody's got to program that stuff. This isn't something that somebody sat in their basement for a month and put together. There's a team of people that are technically skilled that expect a comparable annual salary to other people that do what they do, putting Mm -hmm. these things together. That is a lot of money to recoup. I can get a painting for a few hundred dollars and use it in my game. If I want an app, I got to pay five, I don't know, some number of people for the next seven months. And then I've got to pay for upkeep. That mm-hmm. That's a cost, no doubt. 3D terrain. 3D terrain is a thing we all love. Man, I can't scroll down my Facebook without seeing pictures of people's board games where they've put in 3D. Ch- we talked earlier about Scythe, Jimmy's copy of Scythe, and how awesome it is. It wasn't mm-hmm. cheap. Right, right. But uh, I'm going close to the get off my yard kind of age here. But- <laughs> Back in the day, I mean, I remember games whenever you didn't need an app to play. Well, I remember the days of playing my miniatures game and not having the 3D terrain. We would go out and glue together styrofoam, 
cut it with a styrofoam melter, paint it up with different colors, throw static grass on it. We would make our own stuff. And a lot of the times it looked like crap, but still that was ours. And we made that and it was, it made it more fun. What's a better experience playing on the homemade stuff or playing on the pre-made, you know, like the, what is it, Dwarven Forge? What's the, what's, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, dwar- Dwarven Forge. Yeah. I think if you're able to do it, the homemade stuff is that much better because it's what you made. You get the satisfaction of people playing on something you did and you're sharing that with your gaming group. What if you suck at making homemade stuff? <laughs> I mean, what if, what if we're talking about a plank of plywood with some shoe boxes well, on it? You can you still play the game. game. You can still play the exact same game. You can still play your Warhammer, but you're on plywood and shoe boxes. Oh, trust you're me. telling me that that's... That's not a step down. It's you got to be more immersed whenever you got painted scenery and trees, and it looks like somebody's model train set table that you're playing well, on. Well, I think here we're we're kind of going a little bit out of uh, what we're talking about here because I think basically what we're talking we're we're thinking more of board games, okay, and okay. I kind of branched out into miniatures. But board games, I don't think you really need that many miniatures or three D terrain to play it. I'm sorry, it's really cool, but I don't need a big Castle Grayskull to play the Masters of the Universe game. You know, you're going to keep referencing Masters of the Universe because I know, I know you, Scott. I know deep down inside, you super duper wanted that game until you saw the price and saw a stupid 3D castle and you were like, darn it. <laughs> no, I was, I was looking at it and I was originally, I was like, no, I don't want it. Then I looked at it and then I realized I really don't want it. Oh, that's there a shame. was nothing there that really jumped out at me. It was like, this looks like the most amazing thing ever. This looked like a combination of those magic board games that they put out, uh, what, maybe eight, nine years ago. Like the arena uh, style ones, like Arena of the yes, Planeswalkers? I get the same feeling of that game with those games. If I can go to Ollie's and pick up one of those games for seven bucks, why do I have to pay? $110 for a different IP and play pretty much the same game. Well, we'll get to that. Circling back to this video, it tends to suggest that the board game companies have some responsibility to keep price in check. Do you think that's true? I come from a hotel background. Okay. So I know that there were times that whenever we would get to it, we would raise our prices. We would raise our prices. People would complain about it. Then they would just get to, well, this is the norm, this is the norm, and that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Then we would raise our prices. They would complain. They would keep coming and coming, and it's the norm. That's what I'm scared now with the games is that they are putting up the prices, and people are complaining about it, but then they keep paying for it, and they have these huge Kickstarters that work out beautifully, and they're thinking, we have the people out there that will buy these things. Mm-hmm. So let's jack it up another 10%. Let's take it up another 10%. They should really look at these things because there are some people that this is like a gambling problem. You know what? I'm going to get my uh, payout this time, or I'm going to get the experience of this game. And they just keep putting the money in and putting the money in. You almost need to have like a 1-800 board game uh, hotline now for, or 1-800 Kickstarter. Business opportunity, uh, Scott. Hey, there this we go. The podcast I'm, is finally going to turn a profit. Yes. <laughs> it it almost feels like they're feeding off of these people that they just 
they want to get the new hotness. They want to get all everything blinged out. No, it's down to each person. You have to stop and think, can I afford it? Is this going to affect me financially? All right. So the video says that companies are, he puts out there that companies are being greedy or lazy. They're purposefully choosing to make games more blingy and purposefully not making a cheaper option. Like, yeah, you can get a Maserati, but you can still get a Ford. And he's saying they're not even offering the Ford. Like Iridia. He points out Iridia and he's right here. They have the painted miniatures. They don't even have mm -hmm. an, un never mind standees. They don't even have an unpainted option. And he's saying, so if you're not willing to buy these, these painted miniatures, then what Far Off Games is telling you is you can't play my game. That's the the take that he had on it. How do you feel about that? You know, do you think that maybe is the com I don't think that the company is trying to purposefully be prohibitive. Uh, we talked with Cody, and his thing was, mm -hmm. I want my game to be one that if somebody's going to play it, they're going to get the full experience as I envision it. And quite frankly, a company like Maserati, they make a car. They they don't say like, you know, they don't offer it without the leather seats. They don't offer it in 88 horsepower. They are in fact saying, if you don't want all these, you know, if you're going to buy this Maserati, you need to buy it the, the way that we intend it to be. And if you can't mm -hmm. afford it, well, there, buy a different car. So there are other games. There's a counter argument here. Last year, uh, some of the best games. Two, two of the best games, highest climbers I've seen in a long time, three, I'll even go further back. I was going to say Dune and Arnak. Talk about mm -hmm. absurdly great games for under 50 bucks. And right. then I was going to go one year behind that and say uh, Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion. You can find that thing for like 40 bucks now and there's more game in it than, I guarantee you there's more than, there, than what, He-Man that, that you were talking oh, about. Yes. I guarantee you that there's more game in there and that it's going to sustain a higher ranking basically forever on board game mm -hmm. geek compared with uh compared with he-man it's not like there aren't options right these people oh. that can't afford to go 110 dollars in on he-man yes it is a fact then they can't play he-man but it's not like they're not being given an option of the ford basically and the ford ain't that bad here dune arnak the crew regicide marvel united I don't think it's up to the person publishing the game to like, I don't think that they need to have a responsibility to make the game accessible for as many people as possible. They can make their game however they darn well please. And if you can't afford it, or if I can't afford it, well, too bad for us. And if it means that they don't back because there's too many people like us that can't afford it, then they ain't going to have a game. But you know what? These games that he's complaining about, uh, your Iridia. He's complaining about Iridia. The thing raised over a million bucks. Why does mm -hmm. Cody have to change anything? He just made a million bucks on his game. Sounds to me like he knew what he was doing. I agree with you. You had a great idea there with Maserati where you are buying the brand. That's what you're doing. You're, mm -hmm. not, buying, you're not buying a card. You're buying the brand. With Cody... He set his standards high with Zaya. Great game. He wants to keep that same high standard with Iridia. They have etched out their niche as to this is the kind of game company that they're going to be. If he can do it and keep profitable and everything with being in that niche, hey, go ahead and do it. If there's a demand for it and people want it, 
go ahead, do what you're doing. And it's not something where we need to be able that they should police themselves saying, well, we need to put out a bargain brand. Because, yeah, Maserati's not going to put out the McDonald's brand Maserati or anything mm-hmm. like that at all. It's it's going to stay there. So he wants to have his market of what he does and keep it there. If people can't play it, I mean, it's you're bound to find someone who has it. Yeah. Let's, let's emphasize that. They're not saying you can't play my game. They're saying you might not be able to afford my game. Mm, yes, yes. You can get in with other people and each pitch in one fourth. You might have right. a buddy that just happens to have all the games. Mm-hmm. Play, play with your buddy. Yeah, you could go to a con and they have it there and you borrow it for two hours or something, play the game. You can find out and I'm sure that there's ways that you can pick up the game later on whenever you're done. It's a weird area that's there in here that, yes, I don't like where things are going with game prices. I don't like them constantly going higher and higher. Mm-hmm. I feel that there needs to be a point where people realize that you can get a quality game. Like you said, with Viscounts. Yeah. You have a ton of game in there for, what, 40 bucks. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing thing there. There needs to be more pomp and circumstance for those types of games so that people can see, all right, I can't afford that. I can't get that. But I could get something similar in this. Scott, name a big Kickstarter from the last, I don't know, X number of years. Name a big Kickstarter. The Zombicide 2.0, or no, the Wild West Zombicide was a big one. Okay. Do you think that had more backers for the base game or the deluxified special version? That was probably more backers on everything. More than likely. We're not going to look it up. I don't feel like it. I put down in the show notes the numbers (laughs) for Iridia. When we talked with Cody, he said that they have the Epic Hunt expansion. It's just one character. He said it really doesn't add much. I just put it on there for anybody who wants to help out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I didn't back that. I was like, you know what? I don't need that. It's just one character. That's that's a minor thing. Don't want it. Would you know, Aridia has five to one. More people. Really? Five to one That is the ratio. For every one person that backed Aridia, five people backed it with that little expansion that Cody himself said, it really doesn't add much. Huh. It's definitely uh, a thing of FOMO. That's, that is a big thing right now. Deluxe versions though. Even I See, I wouldn't say FOMO. To me, it's deluxe versions. They always have significantly higher backing. And I think it's because the majority of people want to play with a deluxe version. If I'm going to play Scythe, I want it to be on that giant map. Darn it, I want, I'm going to steal that resin miniature from Jimmy's gang because <laughs> I want that in the middle of my board now. If I'm going to play miniatures, I don't want plywood and cardboard boxes. I want cool. You know, I want that. The question that arises is, what's the value proposition for each individual? And that that's why we don't get into pricing because that's going to vary from individual to individual. You know, how much value you get out of if making the terrain look cool. The miniature in the middle of Jimmy's sideboard was, mm-hmm. we'll say, fifty bucks total with the shipping. To me, that's a bad value proposition. I would love to have that thing, but not for $50. For 10 bucks, yeah, absolutely. I'll buy one today. I think a lot of these deluxe components, it's just a value proposition that each individual needs to look at and say, am I going to get the amount of enjoyment that this cost would require me to get to feel fulfilled? And the backing, the way that Kickstarter backing goes is showing, quite frankly, that the vast majority of gamers, their answer is, Yes, 
I'm going to get as much fulfillment and as much enjoyment as I would expect. It is worth spending this extra money. They can charge whatever they want for a game. And until gamers say, you know what, I'm not going to get my money's, my enjoyment out of that money. So I'm not going to back that until we start seeing that the base game got more backing. Well, this is the trend that it's going to keep going. It's it's just the free market. Yeah, that's something that I think that Games Workshop ran into. They would come out with base games, mm-hmm. uh, like their starter sets for whenever they had a new uh, edition of Warhammer come sure. out. And you would take a look at it and be like 150 bucks. And you're like, oh, God, 150 bucks. But then with us, we would take a look at it and you'd see how many models you have in there. You figure how much those models would cost if you bought them all separately. And you're thinking, that's a heck of a deal. And now then it's getting to the point where the price they are doing is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you aren't getting that same return on your investment on that as far as entertainment goes. So you're saying the inflation of the price is not being matched with the inflation of overall enjoyment. Yes. So what happens now is they've been putting out smaller ones, like basically they've been following like a Kickstarter plan, really, where they have like, you have a small one. Here you go. You get the sample of the game and it's 60 bucks. Mm -hmm. Then there's another one that's maybe $100 that you're going to get for this. Then you have the big one. It's $200 with this much more in there. So I like being able to have those options. So you're saying Games Workshop maybe started to realize that having everything all together in one giant package was becoming prohibitively expensive and they could actually sell more if they gave you a little drip at a time, like here, buy this and then you can do like an add-on or a piecemeal later. Yes. Interesting. Scott, I noticed that you put in the notes here, it almost feels like there's two separate hobbies. What are you getting at? You have the gamer. You have the person that wants to get the game, to play the game, to enjoy the experience. Mm -hmm. Then you have the luxury gamer who wants to get everything there, play the game, but be able to have all the extra bits, have all the extra add-ons and everything. Get all the bling. Sure, sure. Yeah. I like being a luxury gamer, but I know that I should be just a gamer. You need to make that decision for yourself as to what you want to be. Because once you start going down that idea of luxury gaming, it's hard to turn back. Let's talk on that a little bit. Let's talk dangerous thoughts on the on the luxury gaming side of the hobby. What are some of the things that we run into that, man, we really gotta we gotta rein that in, or this could be something that triggers us to overspend a little bit. I'll let you lead this one off. The FOMO. I mean, people are are afraid of whenever they get this. If they don't get it now, they're never gonna get it. Blood Rage was mm-hmm. like that at the time. Yeah. And it had all the expansions and you're never gonna get it. I went to Origins and all those extra things, they were there. You could get them there. Of course. You're paying for the ability to get it right then and there and make sure that you have it. But if you wait for a little bit, you can get it later on. You don't want to jump in right away sometimes. You really need to weigh in. Take a look at your budget. I can see where FOMO, if there's any one thing that I can say, ah, that's a little bit on the company's, you know, the the, the producer of the game's fault, we'll say, is maybe tapping into people's FOMO. Now, I personally, I don't understand FOMO. Like, I, I'll never... I'll never have the fear of missing out on playing a board game uh, or, or buying things for a board game personally. Mm-hmm. But I understand 
why people have those sorts of things. And I have FOMO for other things in my life. So I understand the concept. I think that if a company says, you know, this is it, one and done, get it now or you ain't going to get it. That's fair, but they can use that to their advantage as a marketing strategy. Like, let's put this in there, whether it's true or not. We'll assume Mm -hmm. that it's true. You either buy it during the campaign or, you you know, we're never going to offer it again. Let's assume that that is a true statement. Well, they're putting that in there on purpose. You know, they don't need to disclose that it won't be available after this campaign. They do that right. because they know, well, we want people you buy it now. We, you know, we want your money. So I, I don't love when any sort of creator does that. But we have seen before Simon had hate, a big, you know, big yep. miniature game, you know, all, all the pieces. Hate was one that you had to back or you could not get it. And it kind of made sense. Mm. Like, okay, we can't put hate, this gigantic box with the word hate in red words <laughs> on the shelf at Target, right? But here we are a few years later and Miniature Market had, I don't know if they bought them out or what the deal was, but uh, a few months ago, you could get hate on Miniature Market for cheaper than you could originally get it for on the Kickstarter. They got all the, I guess they overproduced or something. It all went to mini market and you could get hate with two expansions for like a hundred bucks. I was like, wait a minute, what happened to all that? Get it now or you can't get it. So I, I, I understand the, the FOMO argument and that is something that you got to keep it in check. I think another thing that can be a little dangerous, and this is one that I have is discovery. The idea that the next best thing is out there. You know what I mean? Like you mm-hmm. play a game, you love it. And it's, you know, how many times we play a game three times and it gets put back on the shelf for months. You know, I think a lot of gamers do that, especially now. And I think discovery is a part of that. We want to, we want to find the crown jewel. We're, we're searching right. for the grail. At the end of the day, guys, we're talking board games here. You're not going to find your wife or your husband <laughs> in your pursuit of board games on Kickstarter. They're games. The mental attitude. There are some people that they have an addictive personality. Like you said, the discovery, they're looking for that next hit. They'll buy something, they'll play it, they'll get the enjoyment out of it. Well, where's the next one coming from? Where am I going to get the next hit? And then they go out and they buy another game. We are trying to be mental experts here. I do not have a psychology degree or anything like that whatsoever. But there are people that just have that addictive personality that just need to spend the money on that next hit, on that next hit. So kind of like you said, with the discovery, they're looking for what's going to be the next high that I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. How about listening to too many podcasts or live streams or videos? We've said before, Scott, podcasts, ours included in some way, they're just long form commercials. Mm-hmm. That can be and- dangerous. It can be dangerous, but then sometimes it can be helpful being that I will listen to different gaming podcasts. I get to the point where I listen to so many of them and I feel I know those people. So you get to the point where, all right, if Patrick likes this game, maybe I'm going to like that game. Mm -hmm. With podcasts, with us included, we have a blessing here that we get a chance to play a lot of games before they come out to anyone else. Whenever you listen to podcasts, sometimes you can hear inner voices like, they didn't really like this game. So that kind of helps you in a way think, well, if they didn't like it, maybe I'm not going to like it. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. If you listen to us and you say that, like you're talking about Dog Park, and you're really excited about that, and you had a lot of fun playing that game. Well, I might look at that and think, 
you know what, Patrick and I have a lot of same ideas here. I think I'm going to get into that. Or Patrick is so far removed from what I like to play. If he really likes it, I doubt that there's going to be anything in there that I'm going to enjoy. Read another review or something. Sure. Yes. So you go to another podcast and if you get the same feeling from someone else, then you're like, I'm glad I stepped away. And a lot of times whenever that happens, it does work out for the best. You'll see like with hate, there was a lot of things that came up about that, but I never really heard a lot of people going on about the gameplay and loving the game. So I didn't jump in on it. And like you said, it's on miniature market. So I was able to dodge that bullet, do some uh, some uh, investigation, listen to some podcasts, get to feel some of the hosts that you like, do your due diligence on what you like. You know, there's times where I listen to a podcast and they'll go over, say, six games. And every one of them, they were like, yeah, this game was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. That doesn't mean that those six games need to be on my buy list. Maybe it means I'll pick the one that I think has the coolest theme and that'll be Mm -hmm. on my buy list. Another dangerous thought that we have on on this collecting side of the hobby is that, you know, I got to have it all. If it's good, I have to have it. Like like everybody that plays board games is trying to create a library so that anyone or their brother could come in and name any (laughs) game type and theme. And it's like, well, yes, I have that on shelf A, section 32. That ties into the FOMO and and personally, I don't get it. But you know what I do get, Scott, is on my Facebook feed. Every time I open it, it is wall-to-wall board game content. I wanted to point Mm -hmm. out when a game, a big Kickstarter game will show up. Onk was one, uh, what, a month ago or two. Everybody, everybody's showing the pictures of the minis and, you know, oh, we got Onk to the table tonight. So awesome. And every response is people saying, oh, rock and roll. Can't wait to get my copy. Blah, blah, blah. You know what you don't see is people sharing their gorgeous picture of Ankh and saying, I didn't really care for this game. It was all right. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like, it, no one's going to share the picture of a game that they thought was kind of milk toast. And bonus points for saying milk toast, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> all you're going to get from being in the board game group, from the board game geek group, from the board game source, some of these popular Facebook groups and, and, and the like is you're going to get a barrage of good feelings and and people that are happy to share the picture of the game and they want to tell people about the great experience they had. They're not getting on and saying, Yido sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Nemesis was boring. Taking this gorgeous picture and taking time out of their day to give you this flashy image of the game and basically advertise it to say, no, I didn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. That can do something to you. So let's talk about strategies to play some of the hotness without taking out a second mortgage. What have you done, Scott? Well, one of the big things right now, I am in love with Board Game Arena, with being able to play a lot of games that I may have seen in the past, or they aren't really brand new ones, but ones I've seen in the past that I didn't buy, or I was kind of, eh, I don't know if I want to get this, and it gives you a great chance to play these games. You get a little sample. Um, Yeah, yeah. That will help you figure out, do I want to get this game now? There was one that I got, I picked up uh, Patchwork mm-hmm. uh, because I played it on there and I thought, oh, my wife will love this. I'll, we'll play it with her. What are some of the ones you've, you've seen? By used. If you're on Facebook, just search board game traders. Buy, sell, yeah. trade board games. Buy board games, sell board games. Search that and I'm sure you'll find the three groups that are the most popular. Every day you can see games that are being sold by people. It's got some gentle use and maybe it's half price. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. a brand spanking new game that they 
they took the shrink wrap off. They waited two months and they're like, you know what? I'm never getting this to the table. It was a hundred dollar Kickstarter. They want 75 for it. Oh, hey, I can save a little bit of money. Maybe it was a $50 Kickstarter. They'll take 35 on it. Oh, okay. So you can save some money that way. Play other people's games. You don't have to own every game. It, it, I love it when somebody in my game group says, oh, uh, Jimmy's been a godsend because <laughs> Jimmy and Nikki, Nikki buys everything. And she's like, in, she puts up an ISO post in search of, she's in a lot of these trading groups. She says, ISO dwellings of Eldervale. And I immediately <laughs> took it off of like my wish list because I was like, well, I'm not going to buy that if Nikki's got it. I'm going to play Nikki's copy. So <laughs> Nikki, get that soon so that we can play. Sell the games that you aren't using. Adventurers, how many of you have a spare 10 games, 50 games, or even 100 games that you just don't play? Here's a clue. If you haven't played it in the last year or two, even if it's a game that you like, if you haven't played it in a long time, you don't need to own it. If you super duper regret selling it, one of the 100 games that you sell, just buy it later down the road, used, get that big mega Kickstarter, play the hell out of it, and then sell it to fund the next one. And let's be honest, Scott, how many giant campaign games can we actually play? By the time you finish a campaign game, three more of them will have come out. You can't keep up with the amount of time that you need to invest to play all of the campaign games. And that's what a lot of these big, big money Kickstarters are. They're, mm-hmm. they're Chronicles of Drunagor. They got a payment plan that you can <laughs> you can make your, your backing in four payments. By the time you finish Drunagor, there will be seven more campaigns to come out. And I guarantee right. you, the people that there's going to be people that buy that have backed Aridia and Drunagor and every single, every single one of these campaigns that will come out while they're still playing one of them. People that start Gloomhaven, guess what? You're going to be doing Gloomhaven for the next year and a half. It's not. We're like, still doing Jaws of the Lion. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what? I've I've gotten deep madness and three other campaigns in the meanwhile. I don't know when the <laughs> heck I'm ever going to play those. <laughs> And in lieu of 1-800-KICKSTARTER, if you find that you're having issues with backing too many games, just email contact at levelupgamespodcast.com, send us a deposit of $50, and we'll tell you all the reasons why you should not buy that game. Exactly. Scott, we've gone on for a bit. This has been a phenomenal time, a great episode. I, I only get you for a little bit during the month of September and October, so I'm glad you gave me so much of your time today. I'd say we got to bring this on home. Yes, so how we always finish up the show is we take a look and see how in our real lives we were able to level up. So, Patrick, how did you level up since last time? Well, I found over the last year that I'm doing all this editing and board gaming and you know, I'm spending a lot of time in in this hobby and I've neglected another hobby and that was going for runs and for me that that's a jog. Um, you know, jogging and, and paying attention to my health and I put on a pound, Scott. No, I'm not a big guy by any means, but I've definitely put on weight since last year. So I needed to motivate myself. I signed up for a half marathon in November. Wow. And knowing that I don't want to show up there and be that guy that like passes out on mile four, I need to practice. So I'm trying to go for a jog every day and, and pay some more attention to my diet and my health. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to have a successful half marathon, which for me is, I'm sure we have listeners going, oh, I could run, you know, a whole marathon or whatever. T- to me, running down the street is an achievement. So uh, for that to, to happen uh, is really exciting and, and it gets me motivated, it gets me up off the chair. Uh, so that's my level up. That's, what about you, that's, Scott? That's fantastic. 
my level up is once again, these months here are just everything centered around the Renaissance Festival. Now, at the Renaissance Festival, I'm one of the assistant directors. We had some changes in our cast and everything between last year and this year, mm-hmm. and some people left. This year, I've been put more into more of a leadership thing, and I've been doing a lot more with the new cast members. I've really been able to stop and look at them and recognize them and let them know how good they've been doing and give them those little motivating things to help them do better. Mm-hmm. And I really noticed that it's not just for them, it's for me. I'm noticing this and I'm doing something to make someone's day a little bit better. Yeah. And make them feel better about themselves. And I, it, it does sound kind of selfish saying that, but I cannot thank our new cast enough. They have been fantastic this year. They have gone through so much and really risen to the occasion. I thank them for allowing me to be around them. So I've I've really leveled up my position as an assistant director with the help of them. So that's how I leveled up. Fantastic. Adventurers, thank you so much for listening to this episode 32 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Make sure you go back, listen to Magical Friends episode 31. We got so much to talk about with Clemens, but next week we have another side quest. This one, Scott, you and I take a trip to Great Britain, which no one knows where that is. So it's it's a mystery (laughs) aisle. And we got to talk with James and Paul about upcoming Kickstarter Senjutsu. Stick around for that. Any sort of sign-off today, Scott? I got nothing. Just go out there, be awesome, be the reason someone smiles today. That's always your sign-off. Hey, it works. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.